Hi friends, welcome to the FBC Zealand Teaching Podcast. We are a local church in Zealand, Michigan, and we desire to know Christ and to make Him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal Himself to us in His Word. Thanks for stopping by. Uh, would you open your Bibles, please, to Daniel chapter 3. Uh, if you don't know where Daniel is, it's about two-thirds of the way or so through your Bible. It's about that much. Um, and we're going to be looking at this third chapter of Daniel. And we're in a series this year going through the books of Daniel and Revelation with some other fun things thrown in there. And, and I love the song Ancient of Days because it just reminds us that there's a whole lot of kingdoms on this earth. We were watching the, um, the Olympic ceremonies and the Olympics a little bit yesterday, and you just get to, uh, you get to see all these different nations come through. And some of the nations I'm going, hmm, I know the name. Where are they? And I'm just trying to, f- how many of you have Googled a nation recently because of the Olympics? Okay, not many of you. You guys are good at geography. Way to go. I, I'm like, Latvia. Where is that? I have no idea. Um, but I love going through and just being reminded that there are people all over this world. There's a whole bunch of kings and there's a whole bunch of kingdoms or presidents or whatever their title is, prime ministers. But there's only one king who rules over all. And part of the message of Daniel, in fact, perhaps the central message of Daniel is, don't forget Israel. Don't forget people of this world. I am Yahweh and I am king. And my will will stand. I love reading through this because then we're introduced to a whole bunch of different characters within these first couple of chapters. We met a guy by the name of Daniel. We met three men by the name of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All right, we're going to look at their story today. We also met a guy by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. He's the first king in this book of, of stories about God's faithfulness to the people of Israel and how God brings them out and how God keeps his word and in all these things. King Nebuchadnezzar is an interesting person. He's a leader of the known world. He, he conquered Judea. And he takes three distinctive trips of exiles back to Babylon. And, and Babylon is the place where they're at. And, and it, it's an incredible masterpiece of culture and society. There's things like the famed hanging gardens of Babylon that were at one point one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. There's the Ishtar Gate. There's a ziggurat, a big temple at the center of the town. I showed you a photo of that a couple weeks ago where, where it's just piled high. It's kind of like in, in, um, in a lot of other places, you, you might have a mosque at the center of a town in an in a Islamic area. You might have a church in the center of a town during a specific area. At the, at the center of this town is a ziggurat. It, it, it's a worship place where they would climb up these steps of this big temple and they'd go up to the very top where they believed this is where the gods lived and they mediated between heaven and earth. And it's in this very religious, very pagan religious environment that Daniel, his friends, and a host of other Jewish men and women were taken. Now, the reason they were taken was because um, they did not follow Yahweh. 
Uh, at least they did not follow Yahweh the way Yahweh told them to follow Yahweh. The end of Second Chronicles chapter 36 says this. It says, But Yahweh, the God of their ancestors, sent word against them by the hand of his messengers, sending them time and time again. He sends these prophets, for he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they, talking about the Jewish people, kept ridiculing God's messengers, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the Lord's wrath was so stirred up against his people that there was no remedy. And it says, so he brought up against them the king of the Chaldeans, that's Nebuchadnezzar, who killed their choice young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary. He had no pity on young men or young women, elderly or aged. He handed them all over to him. And Nebuchadnezzar took everything to Babylon, all the articles of God's temple, large and small, the treasures of the Lord's temple, the treasures of the king and his officials. And the Chaldeans burned God's temple and they tore down Jerusalem's wall, burned down all of its palaces and destroyed all its valuable articles. Now, you hear all of that, and it says in chapter 1 of Daniel, it says, and the Lord gave this power to Nebuchadnezzar. There is something that God is going to do to refine his people, to bring them back to himself, to, to like a good father, shake them a little bit to say, you're going in a completely different direction than I ever intended you to go. And he shakes them a little bit proverbially and he says, I'll be faithful. I will bring you back. But in the center of all this, we have a people who have learned a pagan way and who've walked in a pagan way. And God is beginning a process of making them recognize where they are at in their relationship with him. And he's calling them back to himself yet again. So Nebuchadnezzar, leader of the ancient known world at this time, um, it's a very religious society. Um, and by that, they served many gods, lowercase g. One of the gods that they served was a god by the name of Marduk, all right? This is the chief deity of Babylon. Another god of this time is Ishtar. Uh, and these gods signified various things, the storm, the violence of war, fertility, and all this kind of stuff. And we're going to meet these three um, characters a little bit more in depth today. And they're going to be faced with this question. In the end, what matters most? Are we faithful to God and his word? Or will we just keep going by the way of culture, the way so many of our people have already done? Because here you find three men in captivity, taken away their places back home in the process of or already having been ravished and burned to the ground. And they're going, really, God, you're going to be faithful here? And they say, yeah, we're going to be faithful here because we serve a faithful God. In the end, what matters most is their faithfulness to the Lord and even more the Lord's faithfulness to them. So here's a photo. Let me get my thing on here. Here's a photo of the surrounding area. This is taken from one of Saddam Hussein's uh, palaces back in about 10, 15 years ago. And this is taken out. You can see in your upper right-hand corner of your screen, that's ancient Babylon. That, that's in that area. So you can just imagine, here's the plain. 
because this is, this is going to be set in a plane, our story for today. And uh, the, the plane of Dura sets the context for this. Just having this in mind, knowing what the place looks like. We'll look at a couple more photos in a minute. What I want to do is split our reading into three parts today um, because I want to give them to you as we go to kind of section off this text for you because it's decently lengthy. So Daniel chapter three, if you would read with me. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue, 90 feet high and nine feet wide. He set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue Nebuchadnezzar had set up. A herald loudly proclaimed, people of every nation and language, you are commanded. When you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp of the drum and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down, and they worshipped the gold statue that the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Then in a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will be immediately thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Whew, there's a story for you, right? You, you're one of three young men probably somewhere in the age range of 18 to 25, maybe 20 to, five, 20 to 25, 25 to 30, maybe at the most. And you are set in a context on a plane before a statue and you're called out. And the question is, when you hear the harp, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the drum, whew, that's a sentence, right? When you hear all these things, what are you going to do? Who are you going to serve? 
everyone around you. I don't know if you've ever been to a big stadium and you've been with the home team and like you're cheering for the home team, probably not the Lions at this point, but you're, you're going to somewhere and you're with a crowd and you all have like the same heart, the same mind about something. There's just this energy in the room. Here, there's an energy and the energy is don't tick off Nebuchadnezzar, worship and serve his God at least pay homage to his God, because if you don't, there's a furnace at the end for you. There's a whole bunch of people gathered around. They're in a plain of Dura. Now, we don't know exactly where the plain of Dura is. It's probably not far from the capital city. Uh, and one of the reasons I say that is because around the capital city of Babylon, there's a lot of um, kilns that were used to make bricks in order to build the city. So that's, that's one reason I think it's probably close by. And there's this big plain, as you can see. So somewhere in the vicinity, we won't be dogmatic about it, there's a statue that has been set up. Now, statues were common in the ancient period. This is a statue. This is a photo I took when we were in Egypt several years ago. And um, this is Ramses II. He's probably one of the most statued after um, emperors from the dynasties of Egypt. And this thing is, uh, it obviously doesn't have its legs attached to it, but um, this thing is 10 meters tall. So, you know, 30 feet or so, give or take, whatever that, um, wh however that translation works there. Uh, it's about 10 meters or so. So decently tall, but it's not the only kind of statue. And so and it's interesting because the text doesn't exactly tell us what the statue is. It, it doesn't say whether it's um, a continuation of the dream from chapter two, where Nebuchadnezzar's the head and the head is gold. And maybe he made a statue of himself and it's all gold. What it does give us is it gives us its um, actual dimensions. It, its dimensions here are 60 cubits by six cubits. Uh, translated, that's roughly about 90 feet high by nine feet wide. It, it's a 10 to 1 ratio. Um, 10 to 1 ratios would be something like this. This is in the ancient period as well. This is a, um, an obelisk in Karnak in Egypt. And it's tall and it has a decently you know, wide base, I guess. But if the, the bigger the statue, the more surrounding support you need to have. And so here you have something that's around the size of what at least the height and the width would have been for the statue. The point of the statue um, was, was not necessarily to suggest that the statue was the God, but in the ancient period, the statues would represent the God by making the God visible. Um, one writer says it this way. He says, an idol made a God, lowercase g, visible. The idol was not the God, but since it represented the God, it was imbued with the God's aura. So you come to this and you're bowing down to this, but behind bowing down to this is a heart that says, I'm serving the gods of this statue. Now, if you've been reading and journeying through the Bible with us, you'll remember just a few weeks ago, we're reading in the book of Exodus and Moses is up on the mountain receiving all the words from the Lord and he's taking a little bit longer than the people want. And so what do the people do? They go to Aaron and they complain. It's kind of like their MO. They go and they complain. They say, we need to see a God. I'm paraphrasing greatly right now. And, and Aaron says to them, bring me all of your jewelry and all this kind of stuff. And he throws it into a fire. He hammers it out and he makes a God that they can see. 
Meanwhile, God is up on the mountain with Moses, giving him dimensions for a, a tabernacle to build so that he can dwell, so that, that Israel can know that the tabernacle is not God, but that's where God dwells because God would actually come and he would rest inside the Holy of Holies and he would meet with Moses face to face. We're people who tend to need something visible in front of us in order to see what's really going on. And so they'd build these things. And um, notice, I, I tried to highlight it as I read through this, that, that Nebuchadnezzar is a guy who, who served a bunch of gods, you know, gods like Marduk, but he also thought a lot about himself. We'll actually read that a little bit more in next week's passage, um, where a lot of fun things happen. Um, so the text describes this in several ways, like in verse two, verse three, verse five, verse seven, it happened several times that, that it says that there's a statue that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And, and whenever you see repetition in the scripture, you can just kind of underline it. Ooh, they're trying to make a point that he set up, that he set up, that he set up, that he set up. Right? When you see repetition, just underline it. If you underline your Bibles, just underline it. Go, why do they want me to know this again and again and again? And it's because this is a God made and fashioned by human hands. It, it's a God made in, or, or a representation of a God made and manufactured by Nebuchadnezzar himself. Now, for the observant Jew in the land here, they have a problem with this. And it's not just, you know, that they've been called to worship one God. I mean, that's the center of it. But if you remember from Exodus chapter 20, it begins like this. God says, and he speaks these words to Israel. And he says, I'm the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of your slavery. Don't have any other gods but me. And then he says this, do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. You must not bow down to them or worship them for I, the Lord, your God, I'm a jealous God and I'm punishing the children of the father's sin to the third and the fourth generations, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So the observant Jewish boy like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and we've already seen a bit of their character to, to know they've said no to food that God has said, you, you shouldn't eat that. Now they're placed before this and they're like, do we worship something made by human hands or are we faithful to Yahweh despite the consequences? Here we find three men in their young 20s, roughly, standing face to face with a, with a leader who is a little bit um, unstable and a little bit self-infatuated. And, and in fact, in the 10th year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, there was an attempted revolt. And so what might be going on here is he's wanting to know exactly who is loyal to him. And you're faced with this question, will I be loyal to Yahweh or will I be loyal to someone else? We have um, this king. He says, bow down, worship. If not, you get thrown into the burning, fiery furnace immediately. But that's not the only thing that's going on. In, in verse 8, we're introduced to a subplot. All right, the, the, the big plot is Nebuchadnezzar says, bow down or you get thrown in. But then we have some Chaldeans. Now, uh, 
Chaldeans were a significant part of the population of Babylon. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar himself was a Chaldean by background. But there's Chaldeans, and these are probably best thought of as the, the Chaldeans who show up in chapter 2, um, where the king gives orders and he summons all these people, the diviner priests, the mediums, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans. They're, they're probably people involved in leadership over the, over the state. And they come forward, and notice what it says, and maliciously accuse, or literally it means to eat the pieces of the Jews. Uh, a subplot of this is that there's a group of people who want to slander and who want to pick away and who want to tear down the Jewish people. It's kind of ironic because just in chapter two, they have just been saved because of the Jews. God through Daniel has said, here's Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Here's its interpretation. And one of the things Daniel says is when he finds out the thing, he doesn't say, hey, I have the answer. Don't kill me. He says, don't kill all of them. And yet here we find Chaldeans who specifically want to slander the Jews and who want to tear them apart. And this is not an isolated thing in history. Anti-Semitism is unfortunately a very real thing. We have the Amalekites in Numbers chapter 24 who, who, who go after the weak in the Jewish people. We, we have Haman, or Haman, you might say, in the story of Esther, in the book of Esther. And Haman wants to especially get rid of one Jew. His name is Mordecai. But he will settle to get rid of all of them as well. In fact, that's part of his plot. He wants to eradicate the Jewish people. We don't even have to look that far in our ancient world history of the last 80 years or so to see that God's people, Israel, are pretty well hated. And the reason is in part largely due to God has made a covenant with them. There is a darkness and a hatred of people that has its origins in the pits of darkness and despair and Satan in this world. And yet God cares for and protects his people. How to reconcile some of that? I, I, I don't know. We look at things like, for example, it was about 80 years ago was the Holocaust. Just a week or two ago was National Holocaust Remembrance Day. We still have people living in the world who experience this. And yet there are some people who say it never happened. And historically speaking, you have photos, you, you can see everything, and you know that there's something, not just the hatred of the human heart, but there's something much more dark and demonic behind this. Now, note it says that this group comes, seizes an occasion to slander the Jews. This isn't a coincidence. It's a deliberate attempt to do, with, do away with Jews who've been standing in the government. Uh, and it doesn't mean that all of Babylon desires to mistreat the Jews, but there is a specific group of people who target the Jewish people simply because of their ethnicity. Uh, you can read, for example, um, um, there's also this jealousy idea going on. In verse 12, it says, certain Jews whom you appointed to a minister, and no notice what it says in that verse, certain Jews whom you have appointed to administer, and they've ignored you. And the last part of the verse says, they do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. So there's, there's this deep, attack 
and hatred, demonic war against the people with whom God made a covenant. And we're going to see this come up over and over again throughout our study of the, Dan- of the books of Daniel and Revelation. So what do you do when your king, Yahweh, has called you to serve him alone? What do you do when he says, don't bow down or serve gods made by human hands? In fact, one psalmist actually says in Psalm 115, it says, those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. You know, in other words, if you, make, if you make an idol, you'll become like that idol instead of reflecting and resembling the image of God in whom you were made. Now, it may be tempting to think, well, that's a pretty tall order, but we don't have anything like that going on in our actual worlds today. But the story is incredibly practical. For example, how do we respond when the government and an employer, when coworkers, when friends at school, when family members put pressure on us to do something or to not do something that comes into conflict with what God has said? What do we do? And I guarantee you, if you haven't faced that question yet, you will face that in some small or in some large way. What do you do when someone says, don't do that or do that? And you know that that is against God's teaching and God's revealed will for your life. Simply put, and this is a simple answer, right? Simply put, you, you, you do what's right and you honor God. But to say that and to live that, whew, to live that sometimes means a tall order. Sometimes means that there's a cost involved. It's probably one of the reasons why Jesus says, if you want to come and follow me and be my disciple, first count the cost. Because while grace and mercy and forgiveness are free, the cost of following Jesus sometimes costs our life. In fact, it always costs our life, but sometimes it costs our life in, in a different way in this world. God established Nebuchadnezzar, but it's interesting also to note that he doesn't, God never gave Nebuchadnezzar divine authority to request the worship of the people. God's intention for rulers is that they should not be a terror to good conduct, but they should serve the people. But, but when they become a terror to good conduct as the people of God, our identity and our purpose must be grounded in what God has said. Verse 15 highlights this point. The second part of verse 15 here, it says, but if you don't worship it, you will immediately be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? At at the center of Nebuchadnezzar's heart is this question. Who is your God? that can rescue you from me and my power? That's the central question. Now, there's a central answer. And in probably, the, I would say the center of this whole chapter is found in these next three verses. Verse 16, read this with me, please. Notice how they respond. It's the first time they're talking in the text. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. <laughs> you just told the leader of the known world, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, 
even if he does not rescue us, we, will serve, we, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the statue you have set up. All right? Their response is simple. And I think it's actually met with a lot of respect. I don't think they're being hot-headed here. They're basically saying, look, you think you have power, you think you are king over all, and you are king over this nation, over this world, but you're not king over all. In fact, the God we serve is much bigger, much more powerful, and he exists. You know, there's the if there, and they're not doubting the question of God by asking that. It's actually in parallel to what they say in verse 18. Um, if he exists, if the God we serve exists, he can rescue us. But they, they qualify it in 18. They say, but even if he, the power, sorry, but even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods. Plainly and simply, they are saying this. The point is this. Their obedience is not conditional on God's power versus the king's. Rather, they're, they're saying, regardless of what happens, they've decided to remain faithful to God in his word despite the consequences. In other words, I've decided to follow Yahweh. No turning back. No turning back. I love how Dr. Leon Wood highlights two important things from this, this area, from this passage here. The first one is this, and he says it this way. It's so great. He says, the young men recognize that God's will might be different than what they would find personally pleasant. Right? The, the prospect of being burned is not one that they would find personally pleasant, but that's not necessarily what God's will may or may not be. They don't find it personally pleasant. And they were willing to have God's will be so without complaint. He, he says, too often Christians are, are not willing to have God's will different from their own. And then they complain when it proves so to be. Think about just your life right now. The things that we tend to fret about, the things we tend to get up in arms about, Sometimes those things are things that also break the heart of God and we should be mindful and we should ably and with the help of God's spirit represent God in that stand. But sometimes we get up in arms about the things that God has not said, I want you to invest your life in that. For these men, it's not what finds personal satisfaction or being pleasant and being comfortable that defines them, their whole being is about, look, God's will is God's will, and we are content with that. There's a second thing Dr. Wood points out. He says this, he says, the young men did not make their own obedience contingent on God's doing what was pleasing to them. He says, they were ready to obey whether God chose to deliver them from the furnace or not. And I love it. He says it this way. He says, this means they were finding the object of their affection in God himself and not in what God might or might not do for them. When faced with this, they simply said, we're not going to serve your gods. We serve one God. While he's called us to this particular context in order to be good administrators, O king, I'm adding a lot of words to maybe what they felt. Um, while we're here and we are serving you in a practical sense, O king, you need to know we don't serve you. We serve Yahweh. We're not going to bow down. 
And they're not intimidated because their hope is not in what would happen on this earth to them. Their hope was in God. Their their hope was in the revealed will of God for their lives. And that's what they were being faithful to. And it wasn't just about faithfulness. Their faithfulness comes from having a right vertical relationship with God. Love how Dr. Wood says, he says, the object of their affection was God himself. It wasn't just doing the right thing. It was that they were so encapsulated, they were so in awe of who God was that, oh, how could they do anything else? God had smiled on them. God had given them grace. God had made covenant with his people. And if that had not been enough, it would have been sufficient. So, They come to this and they're faced with what's going to happen next. Now, predictably, because the king said, if you don't, here's what will happen. Predictably, um, there's a furnace and they're headed that way. But not only that, notice what it says in the text. Verse 20, uh, sorry, verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage and the expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times hotter than was customary. And he commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. And since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace so extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men not tied, walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the the door of the furnace of blazing fire and he called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the most high God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. When the satraps, prefects, governors, and king's advisors gathered around, they saw that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed. Their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, Praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. Underline that. He rescued those who trust in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, tribe, or language, sorry, people, nation, or language, who says anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. For there is no god who is able to deliver like this. Then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. What I, what I want you to see is that, yes, God saves his people in this case, in this way. 
Yes, the king recognizes this. And I think this is part of God's continuing revelation to this pagan king about who he really is. It's kind of like the story of Pharaoh. The, the, this first bit of the story of Pharaoh, Moses comes to him and he says, let my people go. This is what the Lord says. And he goes, who is your God? And Nebuchadnezzar is learning who their God is. Little by little by little through very challenging times. But notice, just because they're given something at the end and they're given status at the end, it doesn't, that is in keeping with God's will for them. The New Testament records the stories of people whose end looked different than theirs. And we have to wrestle with that. Why does God rescue some from a fiery furnace and others he allows to be tortured at the stake? I don't know, other than it's part of God's good pleasure and they have given their lives for something much greater than anything this world can offer. They've given their lives for the sake of the glory of the king of the universe. But what I love about the story is Nebuchadnezzar sends three men in and they're bound. And you know it's hot because the people who are carrying them die on the way that they're going in, right? You know it's hot, but he rescues them. But he doesn't just rescue them, it's how he rescues them. It's what you find in the middle of this rescue. You find not three, but four. Even in the fire, God is with them. My friends, some of you are walking through really difficult days. You're walking through what seem to be fires. People at school looking down on, on you, maybe because of your faith. P people within your family not understanding why would you worship or serve a God like that. You're walking through the fires of health issues in this world. You feel like you're bound and you feel like, oh man, we're just going through it again. Be reminded, you don't walk alone. God himself is with you. In fact, the prophet Isaiah, I don't know whether or not these three men had heard this, this word from Isaiah just yet. Uh, Isaiah comes before them chronologically, but, but notice what Isaiah prophesies to Israel. I think they probably had heard this before, but my opinion. It says this in Isaiah 43. Now this is what the Lord says. The one who created you, Jacob, and the one who formed you, Israel, says this, do not fear for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. I will be with you when you pass through the waters and when you pass through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. You'll not be scorched when you walk through fire and the flame will not burn you. These three men didn't know what the end result would be that day. Would they survive a fire or would they perish for the glory of God? One thing they knew, God had called them to be his disciple and to live faithfully. And they'd rather please the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords than any other ruler or person in this world. The decision that they made in chapter one to not eat food underscores this same thing. Put another way, 
they desired to serve and worship God more than the security or the accolades of the kingdoms of this world. The amazing thing is that God's metrics for success are often different than ours. When we look at more and more and better and better and all this kind of stuff, and sometimes God brings that. God says, will you hear my voice and be faithful? Because it's in that moment we learn to trust our good father who says, by the way, when I work through you, you will bear much fruit because apart from me, you can do nothing. We're going to transition to communion in just a moment here. I want to invite our worship team to come up. I love what it says. As we move that way and we think about the cross and we think about what Jesus has done to make us right before the Father, the book of Hebrews in chapter 12 says it this way. Let me get there. After giving this laundry list of the hall of faith and here are all these people who gave up all this because they wanted to follow God and they wanted to join God in, in his work in this world. It says this, it says, Therefore, since we have been surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily ensnares us. Let's lay them aside. Why can we lay them aside? Because Jesus has said, let me take all those things and let me cover them and let me wash them white as snow by my blood. He says, let us lay every side, every weight and sin that so easily ensnares us. But then he says, let us run with endurance the race that lies before us. You, you and I, we've been given a race We've been given a, a walk to engage in every single day. It's called discipleship. It's called following Jesus. He's given that to us. He says, let us just dive into this race that lies before us. But here's how we do that. Number one, we keep our eyes on Jesus. We, we, we don't look at our past. We, we don't look at the sins that want to ensnare us or beset us. We look to the one whose hands have been pierced, whose body was broken, whose blood was poured out to cover our sin, but not just to cover our sin, to give us life. We look to Jesus and we keep our eyes on him, the source and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame and he has sat down at the right hand of God. We serve a God who is alive and who is seated in heavenly places, who is powerful and who gives us everything we need for life and godliness. The call for our lives is not just to be better. All right? It's not just to be faithful. It's to go to the source of how we can be faithful. Jesus, the source the perfecter of our faith. We're going to celebrate communion here in just a moment. Um, and this is a time just to reorient our minds and our hearts. Lord, here's what you've done for us. Here's what you've done for us. Help us to walk after you. Help us to care more about the applause of heaven than the applause of earth.
God, write our hearts before you, and we want to give you that opportunity for just a moment to, to pause, to bow your heads, to close your eyes, to, to, to pray to God today, because maybe you've been holding on to something here today. Maybe you've been stuck in a different pattern of this world, and you need to come back and just say, God, I'm here for you. God, thank you for giving me life in your name. Thanks for listening. We hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith. If you have questions,